Isaiah, looking at the book of Isaiah in 20 minutes. And Isaiah is a long book. 66 chapters, which cover an awful lot of years. Uh, not just the years that he was active, which is about 740 BC to 701 BC. But he also, as we'll see, sees beyond those years and talks about them as well. Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. And he's mentioned in other books in the Bible in the sort of historical section, so we know quite a bit about him in that sense. The book has three quite distinct sections which cover different themes and different periods of time. Some have suggested that there's so much difference between those uh, three parts that there's actually three different authors. But the New Testament accredits them all to Isaiah, so we've got no real reason to doubt that. We've got a lot to cover this evening, so we're going to dive right in. So our first point as we look through the whole book, is that God will judge and exile and a remnant will remain. This is really the whole of section 1 to 39. This is the longest section. Don't worry when we're still going uh, in quite a bit. But this section as a whole deals principally with the time that Isaiah was alive. Chapters 1 to 5 serve as an introduction to the whole book and give us an idea what it's about. Although they are God's people... Israel don't understand. So in Isaiah 1 verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its crib master. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They're also sinful and stubborn, though outwardly they continue with the pretense of worshipping God. So Isaiah 1 11, I've had enough of burnt feasts uh, and offerings of rams of well-fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. Do you see that they're still going on with all these things, but their hearts are in a completely different place. And so God says that he will judge them and send them into exile. So Isaiah 3.24, instead of perfume there will be rottenness, instead of a belt a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. So the people are going to be sent away, but we were already told that way back in chapter 3. This is sort of looking at the whole time ahead. But, as we had in our reading as well, a remnant will remain. So Isaiah 4 Verse 2, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the Lord shall be the pride and honour of the survivors in Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The Lord will create over the whole sound of Mount Zion and over assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of flame by night. For it shall be the glory of the Lord there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade, a day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. So there's this wonderful picture of them being uh, protected, of them coming, uh, uh, remaining a, a remnant there. And those same themes are returned to throughout the whole first section of the book. So chapter 6 starts the book proper. We get Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet, where Isaiah, as you were hearing just before, is given the awful task of preaching the truth to a people who are deaf, blind, and stubborn. He's told to preach until only that remnant remains. The people will go into exile in Babylon. 
Isaiah is to preach to them in the run-up to that event, calling them to repent, but in the knowledge that actually his words won't work. That generation will not turn and they will not avert the coming disaster. That's not to say that Isaiah's message is entirely negative in this first section. You get some amazing passages which we quote around Christmas time. Emmanuel is coming, for example, chapter 7, 714. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We think, oh yeah, Christmas, that's coming, brilliant, whatever. But, well, actually, it's a fair way away, isn't it, (laughs) Don't worry. Um, But even there, it's linked with the events of his day. So Isaiah goes on, and the other verses that follow, this one that's born shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. What he's saying there, actually, is that Assyria will invade, but don't worry, God is with us, Emmanuel. He's with us, not them. Within the time it takes a virgin to get married, conceive, give birth, and wean the child, Assyria and the northern kingdom who joined in with them will be no more. That doesn't exhaust the meaning, of course it's pointing to Jesus, but it's linked with the events of his time. Judgment is coming, in this case on the northern kingdom, and on their enemy, Assyria. And linked with the promise of judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel is a promise of a reversal of that exile. Again, famous Christmas verses, Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is where it starts to sort of stretch beyond Isaiah's day and promises also a child in that same passage. But one who will reign forever on David's throne over the northern kingdom, here notice. Well, David's line had not reigned in the northern kingdom for 200 years when he wrote this, but those kingdoms are to the north. Again, the original adds so much context, doesn't it, to what is being promised. It's a reversal with David's throne now being over the northern kingdom too. So Israel and Judah will go into exile. Israel to Assyria, never to return. Judah to Babylon to return later on. And only a remnant of the people will remain, a stump, as it's referred to a few times. It's like the tree has been cut down and just a bit at the bottom remains a bit like we've got one in the back garden that we're trying to get rid of. But from that stump will come a branch. So Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Again, we're thinking Jesus, which is right. But again, this is linked with the return from the exile. This is a passage where the highway shall be opened for the remnant to return. And yet also linked with a time when the lion will lie down with the lamb. That's the same passage as well. It's as though Isaiah can't quite see what he's seeing. He sort of sees into the future. And yet again, the clue is Christ, isn't it? That's where it's pointing us. Who brings the exiles in. Who will also bring in the new creation where the lion will lie down with the lamb. He's seeing all this. Uh, He is that one who will bring it. So there's good news in this first section as well. Also in this first section, it's not just Israel and Judah that Isaiah pronounces judgment on. I'll just list these off for you. There's Babylon, 
Assyria, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Jerusalem specifically, Tyre and Sidon, and then culminates in chapter 24 with the whole earth. And yet when this whole section on judgment is done, when the whole earth has been judged, there's the promise of a great feast for the remnant of God's people, and a promise to swallow up death forever. So Isaiah 25, 6 to 8, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged well wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. A wonderful picture there. After all this judgment has happened, God brings his people together for a feast on the mountain. And God's people sing a song of victory in 26. And in 27, Leviathan, the great dragon, is slain and God's people are redeemed. And you sort of think the book could end there, really, could in lots of ways. But then it returns to Israel and Judah's weakness and God's judgment on them by a foreign nation. Yet there will be security in the midst of that as the whole building comes, uh, uh, as the whole building comes down of the, the people, if you like. The whole nation collapses. There will be a cornerstone that remains fast. So Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, just thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in, in him uh, will not be in haste or put to shame. Again, it's pointing us forward, isn't it, to the Lord Jesus, even though it's talking about the nation falling apart all that time ago. Chapters 29 to 35 re-encapsulate all that's gone before in wonderful poetry. And then chapters 36 to 39 give you some narrative in the life of Isaiah and his dealings with the king Hezekiah. Sennacherib from Assyria invades Judah. He comes against Jerusalem, but Hezekiah, the king, seeks out Isaiah, who promises deliverance from the Lord. Hezekiah prays that God would deliver them, which God does, striking down 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Trusting in the Lord, waiting for the Lord, makes sense. Later on, Hezekiah falls ill, and again he prays, and Isaiah tells him that God has added 15 years to his life. Sounds quite positive, doesn't it? But it's not all positive with Hezekiah, though. Envoys come from Babylon at the end of this section, and Hezekiah shows them round and shows off all his riches. And Isaiah tells him that all of these things will be taken to Babylon within a few generations. I always think this is really surprising. I'd, I'd imagine Hezekiah to be really upset about that. Actually, he's really happy. He said, well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. At least I'll go in peace. At least that will be fine. But this is the beginning, really, of the events that Isaiah has prophesied, beginning to unfold. And as he does that, as the Babylonians have now shown their face, as what he's been saying all along was going to happen is starting to happen, Isaiah's prophecies go beyond that time to the time when the exile to Babylon will be over. And so our second point, more briefly, don't worry. Um, the remnant will return, be comforted, and serve God. This section from chapters 40 to 55 is often referred to as the servant songs. It looks to a time beyond the exile when God's people would return. So Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord's hands, double for all her sins. The return will happen when a king called Cyrus decrees their return. He's mentioned by name in chapters 44 and 45, even though he'd not yet been born when Isaiah wrote this. God will now come back to his people. He will make a highway to see them and bring them home. And all will see his glory. So those verses go on. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, of course, we know that that voice was John the Baptist. More of that in a minute. We had him go as well this morning, didn't we? But there's more going on in these chapters. The recurring theme is that this is the Lord's servant that is bringing this about. In chapters 42, they are chosen. God delights in them. They have the Spirit upon them. They will bring justice to the nations. In chapter 49, they will have a mouth like a sharp sword and a light to the nations. They'll be to, to all the people. Famously, in chapters 52 and 53, they suffer. They are crushed, bruised, and stricken. And we might be thinking Christ, and again, that's right, but in Isaiah, they're identified as Israel. So Isaiah 41, verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. All the way through, it's listed as Israel that plays the role of the servant. And yet, they also seem to be separate from Israel. So Isaiah 49, verse 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the servant in these songs is Israel, yet also he raises up the tribes of Israel. Elsewhere, elsewhere Israel are told to listen to this servant. And of course, the tension is resolved in Christ, isn't it? He is, in the end, the faithful remnant of Israel. The only one who was what Israel should have been. So it's not an either-or, either it's Israel or it's Christ. It's actually both Israel and Christ. But Christ here is also that separate figure who brings his people back to God, ends our spiritual estrangement from God. And that's why his coming truly was the end of the exile for God's people. That's why John the Baptist appeared with his voice here, calling them back in the 1st century AD, not in the 6th century BC, when they physically returned from exile. The spiritual exile, if you like, only truly ended in Christ. So the section ends then with an appeal to all who are thirsty to come to the Lord, and God will turn to them with compassion. They turn to him. And our last section, even more briefly... This is for all who come with a contrite heart, including the nations. This is 50, chapter 56 to 66. The final section, more than any of the others, globalises what the book has said so far. This offer of the coming of the Lord, of spiritual re- reconciliation, is open to all who come in in the right way. The contrite and lowly in heart in chapter 57. Those who, chapter 58, loose the bonds of wickedness, who care for the oppressed, who pour themselves out for the hungry. Those who turn from transgression, chapter 59. 
And that included as well non-Jews from the nations in chapter 56, and also people who were normally excluded, like eunuchs, in chapter 56 as well. All are welcome in this glorious future. A future where the wealth of the nations comes in, chapter 16. And in chapter 61, those who mourn are comforted. The brokenhearted are bound up. The captives are set free. That very passage is what Jesus quoted and said that that's what he had come to do. So salvation will come. God's enemies will be judged. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. No, that's not just John that talks about that in Revelation. Actually, Isaiah got in first in chapter 65. You see, this last section just gets bigger and bigger and better and better. As we go from a mere return from exile for the Israelites to entry into God's kingdom in the new creation for people from every tribe, tongue and nation. The book finishes with a glorious vision of the future for the contrite in heart who worship God and also the terrible future for those who will not. So Isaiah 66 verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's the other ending that Isaiah gives you, and that's how he ends his book. And the question we're left with is what are we going to do with this God? Will we humble ourselves before God? Will we listen to his suffering servant, Christ, who suffered on our behalf? Or will we be like the stubborn Israelites and keep rebelling and face God's wrath, the wrath of the Almighty that we've seen all the way through the book? And that's the question we're left with. What are we going to do with this God? Long book, short time. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of Isaiah. Father, thank you for the gospel that we see there, even in the Old Testament. Father, thank you for the way that it points us to Jesus in so many ways. Father, thank you that it reminds us of the great God that you are, who is not just in charge of our lives, as, as important as that is, but is in charge of the whole of history. Father, you have everything in your hands. Father, help us to trust in you, wait for you, as Hezekiah did. Father, help us to know that you are for us, you are with us in Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.